Specialty Story, session number 178. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray. In this podcast on Specialty Stories, I speak to physicians who have amazing specialties to talk about their specialty, how they got there, what they like about it, and much more. Today, our guest is Dr. Jason Rosenbaum. He is a molecular genetic pathologist, and he's going to share his specialty with all of you. We start the conversation by talking about how Dr. Rosenbaum first became interested in molecular genetic pathology. I first became interested in molecular genetic pathology while I was interviewing for um, anatomic pathology and clinical pathology residency. Um, uh, For your listeners, anatomic pathology and clinical pathology are often done as a combined residency of four years. And um, when I was on the interview trail at my uh, the first institution I was interviewing at, uh, actually, um, the uh, director of their molecular pathology program was one of my last interviews. And um, she asked me, she had looked at my CV and, and had heard what I had to say in, in, a, in our chat. And she asked me if I had ever considered molecular pathology. And I I told her, of course. Uh, And then uh, I immediately went home and had to read (laughs) up on what molecular genetic pathology was. Um, And it it turned out that she was uh, dead on, that it was a great fit given my background and my interests. And so um, from then on, uh, uh, I, I committed to... Uh, putting myself in the best position possible to get a molecular po- uh, genetic pathology fellowship, uh, and then things unfolded from there. So let's let's go ahead and and kind of paint the picture of what a molecular genetic pathologist is. I think a lot of students listening will will know pathology and know kind of autopsies and that side of pathology. And we've, we've mm-hmm. talked a little bit here and there uh, with some other pathologists about what they're doing day in and day out. Um, but molecular genetic pathology, I can't really decipher what that means and what you're doing day in and day out. Okay. Um, so uh, pathology in general, the way I like to describe pathology uh, uh, around the dinner table, let's say, or to relatives at Thanksgiving, is um, if anything is taken out of your body or if any part of your body is is removed or biopsied and sent to the lab, that's pathology. Is the It's the practice of medicine that um, deals with specimens. And so molecular genetic pathology is specifically the part of pathology that deals with genetic testing. Um, And it is broader than most people think in the sense that um, it's not just necessarily human genetics, but um, it's infectious disease. 
and it's not just uh, inherited genetics, it's oncology. Uh, it's essentially anything, any test that might be returned from a DNA or RNA sample um, uh, falls under the umbra of molecular genetic pathology. And increasingly lately, some um, protein-based testing as well. But. So when you're when we think of molecular genetic pathology, really it's taking anything out of the body and sequencing it to get to a genome to figure out how it's made and what it consists of. It's not necessarily sequencing. Um, it's really based on the clinical need. And so um, if all you need to know, for example, in uh, a patient with suspected polycythemia vera, for example, if all you want to know is the status of the JAK2, of the common JAK2 hotspot mutation, mm -hmm. then that's all we test. We don't sequence necessarily the whole gene. Okay. Um, we have more and less sophisticated testing methodologies depending on what question is being asked. Okay. It seems like this field either is newer or has a lot of new toys with the just increasing technology available to you. Is that, is that true? That that's fair. I think, um, the field proper is, uh, about 20 years old. And if you go by when you could officially, um, have done a fellowship, Yeah. but, um, you're entirely right that, uh, the technology keeps getting fancier um, and more elaborate. And, um, that's a big, big part of what it, uh, of what the job is, is adapting to new technologies, adapting to new findings. Um, the, the job of a molecular pathologist today is not, um, necessarily very similar to the job of a molecular pathologist in 2015. Yeah. It's very interesting. I, I just Googled really quickly. I'm like, when when was that first human genome sequenced and published? I'm like, that's about 20 years ago, which kind yeah. of makes sense for for the field of, uh, even though sequencing isn't a, a big part potentially of the whole genome, but uh, it's very, very interesting. I love it. It's, I always fight, and this is a random tangent about about my thoughts on medical school. I, I always I always say that medical school shouldn't be four years. It should be more than four years now because every year we're learning so many new things and yet we're cramming it all into the same four-year kind of timeline in, of medical school. It just it boggles my mind. Yeah, it's, it's, a really, um, it's a really difficult problem uh, in medical education uh, that it, it's, it's become uh, like drinking from a fire hose and um, they they've they add things you need to know much more frequently than they take away things. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Uh, there, in a lot of ways, medical school ought to be longer. Um, in a lot of ways, though, you're you're pretty uh, you're getting pretty long in the tooth by the time you actually <laughs> get to start practicing yeah. in a lot of specialties, and so uh, I, I don't know how to thread that needle exactly, but yeah. but it's definitely a problem. Yeah. What are some of the biggest myths or misconceptions around your specialty that you're constantly needing to fight among uh, other healthcare professionals or medical students or residents? 
Um, I think in pathology generally, uh, the stereotype that um, that uh, we don't uh, care about our patients or that we're antisocial. Um, those uh, those are some of the more insidious stereotypes. And I'll admit myself that, uh, you know, I've made a joke or two in in my time about uh, navel gazing and things like that. (laughs) Um, But uh, it's really it's really not true. Um, We just have a different way of interacting with our patients. And um, uh, in a lot of ways, we're uh, a, a service discipline in the same way radiology uh, uh, or say, uh, um, uh, what, uh, pulmonary, uh, specialist might be in that we're, we're consultants and, um, we have to have communication and, 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 uh, collaboration skills in order to do our job. Um, specifically with molecular pathology, one of the biggest misconceptions is that the machine does all the work. Um, that, uh, you can just, um, put the DNA in and in a sort of, uh, Star Trek or comic book kind of understanding of science that, um, the DNA just, the machine just tells you everything there is to know about the DNA. That, that is fundamentally not true. There's a, a lot of, um, technical understanding and interpretation that goes into most, uh, tests we do. Yeah. What are what are your kind of top traits or skills necessary for someone to be a good molecular genetic pathologist? I think we touched on one of them already. Uh, I, I think it's super important to be adaptable. And um, w- one of the best examples of that is the uh, pandemic right now, which has put a premium on molecular testing, but um, just a maybe a little more than a year ago, nobody, not nobody, but almost nobody um, would have uh, thought that uh, molecular pathology would have needed to shift it to shift itself so dramatically to um, viral testing in, in, in ways that um, are unprecedented. Pandemics certainly have precedent in history, but not in the era of modern molecular testing. And so the dramatic need to scale up uh, viral testing and the need to um, accommodate new testing and screening and um, uh, new reasons to test viruses, essentially new clinical um, clinical uh, justifications. Um has uh, really put a premium on on molecular pathology generally and adaptability as uh, uh, as a, a trait that is desirable in in this field. What does a typical day look like for you? Um, you know, I don't I don't want to be cliche and sort of say that there is no typical day. I'm sure you get that kind of an answer a lot. Um, uh, I'll say that, um, it's a very collaborative discipline. And so a typical day, um, involves a fair number of meetings, um, either between, uh, either between, um, multiple molecular pathologists or molecular pathology and anatomic pathology or between molecular pathology and microbiology, 
uh, or molecular pathology and oncology. I, I, I won't run the whole list, but mm-hmm. there are a lot of groups that need to be consulted and communicated with. Um, and so any given day involves uh, a lot of meetings. Um, in terms of the clinical work, uh, uh, it, it depends a, a bit on what assay is coming out on a given day. I happen to specialize in the high-throughput sequencing, what most people would refer to as next-generation sequencing. And um, those, uh, those assays require quite a bit of interpretation, uh, quality control, et cetera. Um, and so uh, on a day where I sign out, uh, I might spend most of my time um, uh, reviewing data and making sure all the T's are crossed and I's are dotted and all the mutations are detected that should have been detected, uh, and then writing up the reports. Um, generally speaking, with with those kinds of tests, um, when I'm when I'm not teaching, I can probably do about three an hour. What, uh, what's bread and butter for you? Um, I, I talk a lot about bread and butter with the specialties and needing to like the bread and butter to enjoy your job uh, as a molecular genetic pathologist. What's bread and butter for you day in and day out? I think, uh, it's going to depend on your prep on your particular practice environment for me at a, at a very large academic medical center, we have, um, eight or so different molecular pathologists and we each sort of divide up the work according to our interests and our, our skills. And so, uh, like I said, I'm, I mostly do next generation sequencing. Um, someone else might mostly do infectious disease, et cetera. Uh, but, uh, for a community molecular pathologist, if, uh, uh, the bread and butter is going to be, um, single gene assays, uh, relatively straightforward infectious disease testing, um, and, uh, lab management, um, uh, dealing with quality control issues, making sure assays are, uh, performing within tolerance and, um, and uh, for a molecular pathologist, pretty routinely developing and bringing on new assays in, into your lab. Yeah. What does call look like for you? Um, I don't take call. Um, I think the uh, call issues for m- most um, uh, dedicated molecular pathologists uh, are pretty minimal. Um, a lot of molecular pathologists uh, are are splitting their their service work, and maybe they're also covering transfusion. Or um, uh, a, a better example would be microbiology, and so your uh, their mic their call is going to look a lot like a microbiologist call. What does the training path look like to become a molecular pathologist? Typically, uh, med school then. Um, some kind of a pathology residency. Uh, if you do the typical route, which would be anatomic and clinical pathology combined, that's going to be a four-year residency program. Um, some people, usually academics, um, will do just one or the other, and that's just a three-year residency program, either AP or CP. Um, 
and then uh, a one-year fellowship in molecular genetic pathology. That gets you credentialed to be a molecular pathologist. Now, that being said, it's more and more common among pathologists generally to do uh, a second fellowship. Um, and things that are typically combined with molecular pathology, uh, uh, I think most common is probably hematopathology, so um, focusing on uh, disorders of the blood. But um, not unusual would be a cytopathology fellowship or a uh, 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 a, a transfusion or uh, really any other um, pathology subspecialty can be added on. Um, it's not clear whether that's strictly speaking necessary to get a job or whether that's um, uh, just um, uh, people kind of being insecure and adding on uh, uh, additional training, but um, it is becoming more the norm in pathology. Now you, <clears throat> it looks like you're a program director. Are you a residency or a fellowship program director? Fellowship. For, for the fellowship program, as the program director, what are you looking for in an applicant for your program? For the molecular genetic pathology fellowship at our program, uh, we tend to favor um, people that are clearly committed to molecular pathology um, as a field unto itself. Um, and so um, it, it's not that having another fellowship is going to count against you or anything like that, but um, somebody that uh, very clearly in their personal statement or uh, very clearly just from looking at their CV is committed to molecular testing in, in contrast to some other discipline. Um, that that's something we value very highly. Um, increasingly in molecular pathology, some kind of data science or programming or uh, even formal bioinformatics training, um, uh, even if it's uh, as an amateur or a hobbyist, uh, is, is valuable in, in an application. Um, so many tools now uh, rely on some understanding of software and some understanding of data. That's very interesting that the <clears throat> more of that computer side of things is coming out in the field of medicine. Do you, do you feel like that'll be a bigger and bigger part of, of the molecular pathology in the future? I think so. Uh, I think it's already a big part of molecular pathology, and at, at least at um, large institutions, um, it's uh, already spreading out into other parts of pathology. Um, and I, th I think it's probably only a matter of time before, uh, um, you know, with everything electronic, with everything technically being data already in a lot of ways. Uh, it, it's only a matter of time before the data scientists um, become important in uh, more um, patient-facing parts of medicine. Mm -hmm. It's already important in radiology. It's yeah. you know, yeah. Um, for the the future primary care doc listening to this, or, or even specialists who 
who are going to interact with molecular pathologists, what do you wish they knew about what you do day in and day out to help them do their job, help the patients better? Genomics is complex. The technology we use to interrogate genomics is also complex. And um, I wish that uh, non-genomic experts uh, appreciated more that uh, the test results we put out are not um, not as simple uh, usually as the data they're used to seeing from, say, uh, a, a basic metabolic panel or um, or a chemistry panel or or uh, things like that, where um, it's a just a few numbers and um, e- each each value. Um, can can be understood uh, in 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 great detail. Um, the The data we work with is uh, often massively larger, even for a single patient. So, for, as an example, the medium sized tumor sequencing panel that we run um, for solid tumors covers one hundred and fifty two genes. Uh, which is about a a half a million base pairs of the genome. Um, That's a a lot of data uh, every time you sequence a patient. And um, there's often some tension between the expectation on the part of the person receiving the report that they are, quote-unquote, just going to get a simple answer uh, and the reality of the fact that we have quite a lot of data here and um, the human genome, in particular, the cancer genome, can be quite complex. And sometimes there just aren't any simple answers. It's interesting to think of of the genome and just the variations of it. To to even have a field that's able to give any answers, it seems like it's it's magical. How how specific do you think we're going to get in the future? Are we going to be able to to sequence a, a newborn and know exactly what's going to happen to them in the future? I would never say that anything is impossible. I think a lot of people 15 years ago thought that routine sequencing, even of cancer, uh, was an impossibility. Um, what I will say is that, um, like I said, currently, our fairly modestly sized panel covers half a million base pairs. The entire human genome is 3 billion base pairs. And um, there are a lot of genes we don't entirely understand or don't understand at all. There's a lot of the genome that uh, we don't understand uh, its function and we don't understand the mechanisms of regulation. And the genome is only the start of it, right? Because the genome is um, transcribed into uh, the exome, or the transcriptome, rather. And those transcripts are converted into, uh, are are translated into proteins. And at each of those steps, there are modifications that can occur, mutations that that can uh, alter pathways, and um, our understanding of any of that is is fractional. So uh, I'm not going to say that it's impossible that we could sequence somebody at birth and um, have some sense of of what might happen to them biologically, 
but um, it, it's a long way off before we can say we have a very good understanding of what's going to happen to to an individual. Um, and you know, uh, as an example of, um, uh, well, I'll, I'll leave it there. I'll leave it there. Okay. What do you know now that you wish you knew before going into your field? I guess to get back to the story that kicked this off, um, I wish that uh, I had known the field existed. Uh, I wish I had had more um, time to um, prepare myself and think about how I was going to get into the field. Um, and so I, I personally, I'm, I'm grateful for, uh, on behalf of your listeners, um, that you're doing what you're doing, uh, and, um, uh, sharing these, uh, what might be viewed as more esoteric disciplines, um, because I had no idea this was even a thing. Uh, and, um, the greatest benefit to me would have been to have some lead time rather than finding out on the residency interview that, um, that molecular genetic pathology was a field. Yeah. Yeah. Again, one of the, the key things I love about this podcast is exposing students very early on to all of these different niches so that you can start exploring passions to, to lead you to these fields. What do you like the most about your field? Um, the, the thing I like the most about my field, um, I think it, it, it's going to sound kind of corny maybe, but, um, I like, uh, building a new test and deploying a new test and knowing that, um, that even if, uh, for whatever reason I stop working, uh, if, if let's make it for a good reason, even if I were to win the lottery <laughs> and not, and not need to work, uh, anymore, the tests that I built and deployed would still be helping people. Um, uh, I, I really, um, find a lot of comfort and value in, in that everybody likes different things about their, their chosen path. Um, and I'm not knocking people that provide direct patient care. But um, for me, um, the return on my investment, I guess, is one way to look at it, is what I really like about, about the field. What do you like the least about molecular pathology? For me, what I like the least is um, the fact that um, other practitioners um, don't uh, appreciate the value um, added necessarily and uh, sort of underestimate the sophistication of what we're doing. Um, the other thing that I, I, I miss uh, uh, quite a bit is um, having um, consistent patient contact. Uh, occasionally I hear from a patient, um, but uh, it's pretty rare for me. And uh, I do miss that. I'm I'm not uh, some kind of a hermit living in a basement. Um, it, it's meaningful to me that uh, the care I provide helps people, um, and I do miss having that direct uh, patient feedback. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be a molecular genetic pathologist? 
A thousand percent. Uh, I don't understand why everybody isn't trying to be a molecular <laughs> genetic pathologist, except for the fact that people just don't know about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I uh, I feel very lucky. My my career path um, sort of went in, in uh, unpredictable directions, and uh, I ended up somewhere really great for me. Um, and a, a lot of it was luck. And, um, I just feel really, really, um, really grateful and really lucky that, uh, molecular genetic pathology and I found each other. What final words of wisdom do you have for a student out there who's maybe just learning about molecular genetic pathology for the first time? I don't, um, I don't know that I have any specific words of wisdom for budding molecular pathologists. Um, what I will say, um, based on my own experience, is that um, uh, any hurdle can be overcome, uh, right? So, um, uh, you know, you might not get the MCAT score you want. You might not uh, match exactly in the program you want. Um, maybe uh, a rotation goes uh, poorly for you. Uh, whatever it is, um, it's not the end of the world. Uh, I promise you. Um, uh, we we didn't talk about this earlier, but um, I started my career as an MD PhD, and um, it was because I what I originally really wanted to do was was science, uh, bench science, and my PhD didn't work out in kind of a spectacular way, and um, there was a while where I thought I would never be happy in my career. But um, but I found a way forward, and it found me sort of, and uh, the that's what I would like to convey to anybody listening to this podcast is that um, uh, no matter how bad it seems, uh, uh, it 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 can get better, um, and things can work out. Uh, you just have to keep at it and keep trying to find the best path forward for you. All right. So there you have it again, Dr. Jason Rosenbaum, molecular genetic pathologist. If you're interested in learning more about molecular genetic pathology, go to amp.org. That's AMP for Association for Molecular Pathology.org to find out more. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to subscribe and Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts so that you get this episode for free every single week. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. This is MedEd Media.